we think we are all talking about the same things. Uh, but often we're just sort of using the same words, right? And maybe often reaching yeah. similar understandings, but underneath there's this vast variability. It always struck me as strange uh, to think that, okay, if you have no grounding uh, to the external world, you, know, you can't have any meaning at all. But then, okay, uh, how much grounding do you need? Like if you put in a little bit yeah. now, suddenly everything <laughs> is grounded out and then meaning just magically appears, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't really make sense that you can take a thought and beam it into someone's brain, right? And have that thought make sense to the other person. But of course, with language, that's kind of how it is. This is Brain Inspired. I'm Paul. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Gary Lupien, who runs the Lupien Lab at University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he studies how language and cognition are related. In some ways, this is a continuation of the conversation I had last episode with Ellie Pavlik, in that we partly continue to discuss large language models. Um, but Gary is more focused on how language and naming things, categorizing things, um, how that changes our cognition related to those things. How does naming something change our perception of it? And so on. Um, he's interested in how concepts come about, how they map onto language. So we talk about some of his work and ideas related to those topics. And we actually uh, begin the discussion with some of Gary's work related to the variability of individual humans' phenomenal experiences, our subjective experiences, and how that affects our individual cognition. For instance, some people are more visual thinkers, uh, others are more verbal, and there seems to be an appreciable um, spectrum of differences that Gary is beginning to experimentally test. And of course, we cover a lot more topics um, related to language and cognition. Show notes for this episode are at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 164. On the website, uh, braininspired.co, you can also learn how to support this podcast to help keep it running. Thank you in advance uh, if you make the decision to take that generous action. Thanks to Gary for being generous with his time. And here he is. So I was in a, uh, oh, let's call it a disagreement with my wife um, the other day. And... I was tasked with expressing my feelings um, to her. And of course, I failed, as I always do, uh, because they're like ineffable and words don't really do justice. You know, I, I felt limited. If I used, started using words to describe what I was feeling, it was going to limit the actual experience that I had had or was having. Um, and I feel, maybe this whole time you can just disabuse me of this notion, I feel that words are limiting uh, in terms of cognition. Uh, yes, they're highly abstract, but they don't capture the essence of what I'm feeling. <laughs> you know, feelings are a whole nother uh, yeah, bag of yeah. tricks here. But um, but w why is it that I think that the most interesting things are ineffable and words don't capture, like categorizing it using words is maybe limits it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. The way I tend to think of it is that the currency of language is categories, and that makes it really great for conveying certain types of information and uh, really bad at conveying other types. And so whether language is good uh, for communicating depends on what one's talking about. Um, now, when it comes to feelings, 
or for example, faces. Uh, some faces are notoriously hard to describe in in language, mm-hmm. and it's not just a problem of English. No language is good at describing faces because what distinguishes one face from another, for the most part, is not categorical. And so the best we can do with language is, and, and this is very telling of how language works, is uh, when it comes to describing a face, is to remind someone of a face that they know, right? And then say, well, it's kind of like this person, but, and then put a little, you know, nudge them in some direction, but older, right? Or friendlier. We're good at mm. interpreting something like friendly. It's interesting that we are good at that yeah. uh, in terms of, you know, having some visual appearance. Um, but we, despite this, we figure out ways, and this is what a lot of, you know, what good writing is about, of conveying things like feelings, uh, visual descriptions, using language. But it's hard. Uh, doing that effectively is hard work. Um, I think of language as uh, a series of cues that we exchange with one ourselves. It's little little cues t- for constructing uh, mental representations. And uh, uh, in a lot of what we talk about uh, is actually, it lends itself to kind of categorical cues that language mm-hmm. is really about. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and, and my other response is, well, compared to what? So when it comes to conveying our, our emotions, well, what's the alternative? I mean, you can do a lot with your face, uh, but it, it doesn't have that sense of being about something in particular, right? right. Uh, so, you know, it, in many cases, language might be the best we can do, even for conveying kind of ineffable things. So my wife is not dumber than me just because she expre- uses words to express things that I, I can't? <laughs> I mean, well, I, I, no. But is it, it do, do you feel like it works? Like, is, From her, is she able like to communicate? Her, her, yeah, oh, is she able to communicate yeah, she's her like emotions? in touch with her feelings and yeah, she's great <laughs> at it and I'm terrible at it. And, you know, I mean, that's, I think it's but an there, age old story. But I, yeah. There's skill in, you know, on your end as well, right? In interpreting it. Um, so she might be really good at it, but like <laughs> it takes skill to to be on the on the receiving side, on the comprehending side, and actually taking those words mm-hmm. and constructing something that is meaningful to you. And presumably, right, even if it's meaningful to you, but it's totally different from what she was intending, like we'd say that that's not a totally successful act of communication. Um, but yeah, but often we can kind of meld our minds in that way. Language. So I, I just wait it out in deafening silence, and then eventually it goes away. <laughs> I thought that was the right thing to do. <laughs> but okay, um, so we have you know a, a ton of stuff that we can talk about. It maybe I'll. Um, I, I don't know if I want to start with uh, inner speech. I was going to bring this up later. I was telling I had Ellie uh, Pavlik on the podcast, yeah, and I was telling her that I was going to have you on, and that you're interested in this um, the phenomenal variability, like the variability in yeah. all of our phenomenal subjective experience. And, and part of that is our inner speech that and I know that you're interested in. And I was telling her uh, that I feel like when I find myself talking to myself during a task or something, using language in my head, I feel dumb. Uh, this is not all about me being dumb, but um, you know, a good portion of it is. But I, I like feel like, why am I talking to myself? That seems, in the same token, you know, I remember my dad, um, back when we didn't have iPhones, but there were GPS systems that you could put in your car and they were specific yeah. for GPS and they would talk to you and he would talk back to it. And I thought, oh man, that's unfortunate. So <laughs> do, so is inner speech uh, a sign of intelligence or 
uh, the opposite, and and then we'll talk about um, variability in our final model experience, I suppose. So, I had a paper that I wrote um, a while now ago when I was a postdoc about um, talking to yourself uh, in the context of uh, visual search. So, can repeating the name of something help you find it? And um, for whatever reason, like a year after it came out, it suddenly started getting all this media attention. And even now, like, I don't know, a dozen years later, like when you Google talking to yourself, like this stuff comes up and the framing is often, uh, you're not crazy if you talk to yourself, right? Like science has shown, uh, and it, and it gets away from yeah. the, <laughs> the core narrative. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you talk to yourself, it, it, it means you're a genius. It's like, that's not what <laughs> the paper is about at all. Um, but, uh, I think, I think there is, yeah, there's a, well, there are two things. Uh, there's the actual overtly talking to yourself and that, you know, at least in yeah. our culture, uh, that's discouraged and that's kind of often seen as like, oh, you know, uh, is, is, is there something wrong with this person? Because we expect it to be inhibited, right? And then there is inner speech, right? The kind of covert um, experience that really a large majority of people have. And one thing I've learned uh, since we started studying it is that, you know, we, we, we all tend to think uh, when we reflect on our experiences, uh, the common thing to do is to think that, well, what we have is the typical thing. Uh, and then you realize, you know, that, well, there's a distribution and you're somewhere on it. Uh, and so I thought my inner speech was typical, but it seems that it's kind of like on the low end. Uh, you know, there are questions that on these questionnaires where like most people put themselves as a 10 on a one to 10 scale, like that they do this constantly and, oh. and I put myself as something like a five but I, I I thought that that's where most people were um so I think intuitively it seems kind of silly like how can you learn something from yourself that you didn't already know but of course that's that's the wrong way to think about it because there's no central you right that knows everything and that's why you know when you're writing like everyone seems to have this experience right you learn something by writing you you it helps you organize yeah. your thoughts and so i think of talking to yourself uh as a as a similar type type of thing uh you're linearizing things you're you're making connections that uh you're obviously capable of making but may not have made prior to actually kind of pushing it pushing it out and back in so dan dennett has this in his uh consciousness explained book uh he has this little uh figure of uh uh, I remember the caption is cognitive auto-stimulation. And it's like a little uh, schematic brain with like these kind of semi-connected parts. And then, you know, there's an arrow that comes out of the mouth and and back into the head, right? Mm. Um, mm. Andy Clark has also written a lot about this idea. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think of language as a technology. And when we talk to ourselves, whether overtly or covertly, right, we're using that technology, um, you know, to to help ourselves think through things and it's good for some things less good uh le le less good at other things but what is it good i mean so i appreciate language as an abstraction and a lot of your work has shown that labeling things um helps you do things faster and helps your cognition about those abstract general concepts but i i feel like uh the majority of stuff that's at least interesting to me labeling one thing about abstraction is it takes away details, right? Uh, and so you're kind of simplifying uh, everything to a degree that might be 
that might hinder thinking about it. Um, and so yeah. I, I'm not sure how to think about this, like what, where you think um, the balance is. Yeah. I think about it being less about removing details and more about highlighting um, dimensions or details that are relevant for a certain task. So you might, for example, realize that there is a connection between two say, situations or two processes there's some underlying similarity uh, and and helps and it helps you kind of reach some you know conclusion draw some inferences that you otherwise wouldn't make uh, and so you are in in a way ignoring certain details I think it's rare that we actually get rid of them we we hang on to lots of things hmm. even if they're not relevant to current tasks because they're relevant for other tasks um, so for example if we have a task of understanding what someone's saying, so knowing what words they're saying. Um, it might not be relevant what their voice sounds like, but you can't help but also attend to the qualities of their voice <laughs> because at the same time, like those things are important for identifying like where they are and where you should turn your head uh, to face them, uh, who they are, and that um, those kinds of things you know, can help you actually can help feed into the meaning because you have expect you can deploy different priors depending on you know, the last conversation you had with this person or what you think this, you know, person is likely to know based on the their, the specific you know, jargon they're using. Uh, and all of that kind of becomes relevant, even for something as simple as knowing what word is this person saying, right? Going from like the, the raw speech to some yeah. more uh, invariant representation. So, uh, yeah, so I don't think we're really throwing away the details, but yeah, we're weighing different dimensions. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy by the way to circle back to inner speech later, because I think there's a uh, lot to be said oh, okay. about that kind of variability and what it means about studying connections between language and cognition. Um, oh, okay. I was about to bring us right back to, um, to that because I mean, this kind of ties into the, the idea of the dimensionality of language, right? Um, so, yeah. so we all have different phenomenal experience, um, and one way to look at that is that our phenomenal experience is important. And however different, however subtle those differences are, whether or not they make a difference to our cognition is something that you could tell me um, and, and, you know, what you've come to think about this. But then I also thought, well, <clears throat> it may be that we all have the same high dimensional stuff going on under the hood, but our phenomenal access to various parts of it differs. And that's yeah. that's what leads to the... Uh, differences in subjective experience. So maybe you can just elaborate yeah. on that. Yeah. On that, or yeah. if that's a ridiculous yeah. idea. No, it's 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 not a ridiculous idea, and it's it, it's really an empirical question. Uh, there's probably some of both. I mean, that's kind of a boring answer. But um, so as far as variation in visual imagery, inner speech, um, there's certainly work suggesting that in some cases the best explanation might be uh, different access. But there's also work showing different performance on objective behavioral tasks. So um, mm -hmm. we find, for example, differences between subjectively reported inner speech, relationship between that, and um, how well people can uh, judge whether two words rhyme, um, uh, their kind of what's called verbal working memory. Um, uh, they, there's also lots of uh, correlations between subjectively reported inner speech and other aspects of subjective experience, 
that we you know, might or might not take at face value. So for example, um, earworms, you know, getting songs stuck in your head, very common experience. People who report not really having uh, much inner speech also report that you know, they, they know what this is about, but uh, they report that this doesn't happen to them very often. Uh, something that, especially in the college student population, uh, this experience of like thinking about a recent conversation you've had and thinking about like, well, maybe I should have said this and that, like, oh, yeah. you know, huge endorsement of like, you know, how often does this happen to you? Most people are saying all the time, all the time. Uh, all the people time. with less yeah. inner speech are saying, eh, you know, not, 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 not much. <laughs> um, right. Well, I, I missed the, and, what, what about the, the earworm? What was the relation between getting oh, songs stuck in your head and inner speech? Just that, that people with less inner speech uh, are less likely to experience it. So I, I wouldn't likely. say never, okay. but yeah. Um, uh, but but there's absolutely value in trying to understand the sort of cognitive profile, differences in cognitive profiles using objective um, assessments. So more of this has been done in the uh, uh, visual imagery realm than in, in the inner speech realm. And there you find, you find really interesting patterns where in some cases you find uh, objective differences. So different patterns of uh, recall and memory, for example, less visual imagery, less details in recall, even when that is the task. Recall in as much detail as you can, you know, some experience. Uh, mm -hmm. But in the other cases, no differences in the kind of gross level performance. But then when you start going deeper into, well, how are people doing the task? What are the correlations between tasks? You find differences suggesting that people are using different strategies. And, and it's in line with what they report. So it's a case where we should take people's self-report seriously because, you know, they're doing some memory task and you ask them, well, how did you do that? And they tell you how they did that. And it's not how people with typical visual imagery do it. And then you sort of do a follow-up study. Well, you know, if they did it using this kind of strategy, then they should find interference with these types of stimuli. And you find indeed that like the, the results bear it out. So these differences have consequences. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's lots and lots of unknowns. Um, another relevant area is synesthesia, where at one time people thought, oh, you know, yeah, people are having these different phenomenal experiences, but they're not really like perceptual and then it's not that hard to design some actual psychophysics studies to, to test whether people's attention, for example, is being kind of involuntarily grabbed by, um, you know, where uh, someone who has uh, sp uh, sp uh, various forms of space-time synesthesia, where, you know, thinking about a certain month is associated with a certain part of space. And then you can see that, indeed, unlike people who just, who, who don't report having this phenomenal experience, in the synesthetes, you cue them with a month and their attention kind of automatically goes to that part of space, uh, even mm. when it's completely irrelevant to the task. Um, mm. Yeah. So what are you thinking in terms of how wide the variability is in our inter uh, difference in our differences uh, between people in their subjective experiences? Is it a subtle thing? Is it a wide landscape? Um, I think it's, it's relative to our expectation. I, I, my hunch is that it's, it's much more than we expect. I stumbled hmm. on this video, uh, yes, just yesterday. I can't believe I haven't seen this before. It's a bit of a uh, Richard Feynman. It's like a six minute clip called, uh, uh, ways of thinking. 
where he makes this point um, that, uh, and, and I'll post a link to it or something. People can watch it themselves. Um, I'll link to it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he talks about kind of how some experiences in this life uh, that led him to think that there is this huge variability in how people kind of experience different types of thought, even when they come to the same conclusion, right? And that we, we think we are all talking about the same things, uh, but often we're just sort of using the same words, right? And maybe often reaching yeah. similar understandings, but underneath there's this vast variability. And, and it, it can be studied experimentally. Uh, and so it, one thing that excites me so much is that um, it really is an empirical, uh, an empirical question. And um, it, I think one angle we've taken is focusing on this hidden aspect where uh, these, these kinds of variability that seem to exist that people are, are unaware of. Uh, because there's lots of variability um, in behavior that we all know, right? We all know that some people uh, go to bed later than other people, you know, morning people. And the reason we know this is we get lots of feedback from the world. We know that people have different food preferences, right? And so um, there is a tendency even there to think that others are more like you. Like if you like chocolate, you think mm. more people like chocolate yeah. than if you personally don't right. like chocolate, right? But uh, but when it comes to these hidden differences, right? Like visual imagery, synesthesia, inner speech, one can compare notes. Uh, one can study it, but we tend not to. And we just project our own experiences on, onto the world. And one reason why I think we can uh, keep going around uh, about our, our life and not realizing that people have these different experiences is that their consequences on behavior are not as big as one would expect because mm. there are uh, – it's a more robust system um, than one can – so so if there were lots of things that really, really required vivid visual imagery, then people who didn't have vivid imagery wouldn't be able to do those things, and they know that. But in fact – a lot of the things that we assume require imagery, uh, actually, there are many ways of, of doing them without the use of imagery. And so it, it kind of opens the door to studying this diversity of solutions. Mm. Um, and we, we draw in this paper, we have hidden differences. We, we draw uh, a comparison to um, what's been called cryptic variation uh, in genetics um, that a lot of, right. you know, you, you do gene knockouts and you find that for a lot of things, like you don't find any observable uh, effects on behavior. And the question is, why should it be that way? Uh, like, why have this redundancy? And uh, one answer is that, well, you have this redundancy to ensure that different developmental trajectories can all lead to a, uh, a functioning organism. That if you had to do things in a very, very precise way, it would it, it, you would not have sufficient robustness, basically. And so as mm. a consequence, you find that there are multiple pathways. And so knocking out various genes often doesn't have any consequence because they're just one kind of path of many to getting uh, that development right. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think of these hidden phenomenal differences as kind of, you know, repeating that same process, but at a higher, at, at the next level where, okay, you have a functioning organism, and you have to, you know, maybe in your culture, learn to read or learn to do math. Uh, and, well, there are actually many ways of getting there. 
And so despite different starting points and kind of different different trajectories, you can get there, but you, you, you don't necessarily do it in the same way. I had Dean Buonamano uh, on the podcast a long time ago, and I don't remember how, but I later learned that he has aphantasia, I believe is the term for it, where yeah. he doesn't have any visual imagery. And I think that is so insane to me to be able to like yeah. think without visual imagery. But, uh, but that's why I was asking about the, is it just a matter of like what, whether we're accessing it phenomenally or whether it's actually going on under, under the hood and we don't really know about it or, you know, there, yeah. I guess this is yeah. the multiple realizability issue. Yeah, yeah. I think for certain kinds of questions, the access question might not really matter, right? If the work is being done by the 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 the, so the part that is that we are conscious of uh, by kind of interacting um, with the sort of visual images that we um, consciously experience, then even if at some lower level it's an identical system, right? Not yeah. having phenomenal access is what makes what might make the difference. Um, well, that's what you're finding so, is you're finding these behavioral yeah. differences based on whether yeah. someone is having phenomenal access to it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so, uh, but it, it's it's not to say right that like the, these differences in, in phenomenology need not imply that you know the, the visual processing in in some people is fundamentally different. I don't I don't think that's the right. case. Um, yeah, but okay, yeah, but so so uh, would the conclusion be that consciousness has a function? <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, I think absolutely consciousness has a a function. Uh, so I I sort of re reject the zombie thought experiment, right? That sure, you know, yeah. I, logically, of course, we can think of such a such a creature, but uh, I I think someone who is, you know, un un unconscious without the phenomenon, like, would not just would, would not behave in all the same ways. So uh, yeah, it's a, but but I also like on the other hand, uh, I think there's absolutely such a one could make the mistake in the other direction and put too much too, mm. too much weight on conscious experiences, whereas in reality, a lot of these are you know post hoc rationalizations, and the reason we do something yeah. isn't yeah so. so should should I feel okay about having inner should I be talking to myself more internally or externally or less what what should I be doing well okay so so one thing that we've been really interested in is um the relationship between uh, the relationship between language, uh, both uh, publicly used language, but also inner speech, um, and kind of aligning our minds, right? So um, Andy Clark and I have this little essay in Aeon about uh, telepathy, kind of the thought as a thought oh. experiment, right? And uh, we we both have this intuition that you know there it doesn't really make sense that you can take a thought and beam it into someone's brain. Right and have that thought make sense to the other person, but of course right. with language, that's kind of how it is, right? We 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 have words uh, that are supposed to denote some some sort of thought, and we use them, and then the other person, you know, under uh, understands uh, the, the, those words are meaningful to the other person uh, to some extent, right? And so uh, if you can beam words from brain to brain, right? That would sort of work, but that's not really telepathy. That's just like fancy texting, right? That's that's not that interesting. Uh, the whole point is of telepathy of the the trope of telepathy is that you can take language out of the loop and be able to communicate with someone who doesn't share your language with an alien, whatever. Right? 
And so, you know, we argue that we have no reason to think that this would work. Um, but that language may, it, it could be that that's the best we have, right? And uh, that it is what allows us to align our mental states sufficiently uh, to achieve at least some level of understanding. And so the idea, uh, there's an experimental angle to this question, which is uh, if people use more language, are they more aligned? And so we do have some preliminary data showing that people who report using more inner speech are more similar in their responses uh, to things, in their similarity judgments. They are sort of more aligned uh, mm. which is what you would expect given that language is this categorical system. And so if you are kind of uh, thinking more categorically, whatever that means, you're more likely to align because kind of it's easier to align on categories than on particulars. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're, we're exploring this idea. And so one implication is that uh, in using more inner speech um, might cause you to sort of align more with other people, which, you know, if you are trying to be wildly original and express some idea that is, is as new as possible, uh, maybe that's not what you want. Um, if you want to express an idea in a way that can be understandable to the most people, uh, maybe that is what you want, right? Then, so it, it, it depends. <laughs> how, how would this, uh, if we had brain-to-brain -brain interfaces, right? I mean, w would that just further the, ha I guess, would there be more particulars that were aligned in that case or, you know, where we didn't have to, where we had this telepathy, it's not telepathy, it's actual brain-to-brain -brain, uh, uh, interfaces at some degree, to some degree, right? Yeah. I mean, in this essay, in the second half, we sort of explore the idea of, you know, if you just had this kind of as an implant, you know, when you're uh, uh, an infant or something, you grow up with it, um, both, both of us can imagine that you know, we're really good at taking in new channels of information and just uh, making them work. Um, and so there's mm -hmm. lots of work even, you know, with adults on sensory substitution and just you know, people are very flexible in learning to use these new channels of information. But I think it would be a learning process, just like learning language is this uh, protracted learning process where over time you sort of align with other people and you learn how to use it. And so, I mean, this is pure speculation. I think with with the sort of brain-to-brain uh, -brain interface, it would be sort of like that, right? Just like we learn to, you know, uh, use um, the expression on someone's face together with what you're saying to kind of build a larger, more multimodal meaning. So you can imagine adding to that some channel of, you know, a flow of neural information that would help you kind of build rapport and maybe disambiguate certain things, add uh, details to, to certain things. But the question of, you know, so let's say, right, you want to beam a thought to me about your experience after watching some kind of movie, right? Your experience of that movie is based on all sorts of other memories and other mm -hmm. movies and, you know, your, your likes and dislikes and all of this stuff. And so for that to make sense to me, like, would you, in essence, have to, right, beam all of your memories, right? Because that movie experience is, is contextualized within everything else. And so an isolated uh, mental state, that's why we're like, it wouldn't really have much meaning outside of the context of, of everything else in your head. Um, and so with language, we can decontextualize it to some extent, but 
you know, that's why it's hard to communicate about things like feelings because yeah. they, yeah, they're, they're much more embedded. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but, but if I'm, if I'm describing my experience of a film or something to you, in some sense, it's nice to use language, which is this low dimensional abstract thing, yeah. because instead of imparting my experience, what I'm doing is I'm allowing you to form your own experience based on my low dimensional description, right? So it's, it's so that you can move through your own world right. and understand exactly. it in your own way. And, and, and that, that yeah. way it's kind of special, kind of beautiful. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so um, Mark Dingemann's uh, also from a few years back has, has a nice, um, I think it's published as a chapter uh, on, on telepathy and uh, taking a different angle where a common treatment of telepathy treats it as this sort of a, you know, a, a brain dump, right? Like, you know, one person transmits a thought or some series of thoughts to another person, right? Whereas actual communication is this interactive process and we make meaning together. And there's also mm-hmm. uh, something that he studied a lot is conversational repair. So uh, it, it, it's not a smooth process. So we ask, huh? And we, you know, raise our eyebrows and we realize that what we're saying doesn't quite make sense given the flow of the conversation <laughs> and we backtrack and we say... <laughs> And that's an inherent part of kind of meaning making. Um, and, you know, a single channel kind of uh, uh, direct communication uh, wouldn't, wouldn't work that way. And so, you know, mm. describing a movie, right, you could imagine it as a back and forth, right? And that kind of makes it more of what you're saying. It's sort of you're interfacing with the other person's uh, background knowledge and experiences, and you tailor the message to, to them. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't have to perseverate on this, but um, I keep coming back to this, you know, uh, thought about <clears throat> inner speech and language and the, and the, the relation between language and cognition. And wasn't it Albert Einstein? You know, we always have to talk about Einstein. He's the classic example. Wasn't it him that didn't like speak until he was? 10 or something like that like his language development was super late am i wrong about that i've i've heard the same story i don't know about 10 i feel like it's one of those like uh you know words for snow examples where every iteration number (laughs) goes up and up yeah uh but yeah i've heard that too that he was was 50 he He was 50 before he started speaking yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. but but uh but then i thought well he's a good example of someone who I, i suppose thought very spatially and um he's the uh uh the uh the go-to for an example of someone who's brilliant, right? And yeah. he didn't, well, he wasn't fettered by language. <laughs> yeah, I mean, natural language is good for certain things, right? And, um, you know, math is not a natural language, right? And so uh, there is, well, so <laughs> I think there's a reason why um, math is, is difficult uh, for us, for most mm-hmm. of us. And requires formal oh. instruction, right? There, um, you know, talk more about that later. But uh, it's 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 very. Uh, I would say it's very unlike natural language. Um, there is a link between spatial imagery, which is different from kind of static visual imagery, and math. Uh, and you see this both in um, actual studies, but also in just self reports of many mathematicians uh, talking about. The, 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 the usefulness of, of spatial imagery, uh, which naively, I think, 
to many people outside of math might think, oh, you know, what's so spatial about like, okay, geometry, sure, but what's so spatial about algebra? But all of these have algebra. spatial, spatial analogs, transformations, and it's very useful often to think about it spatially. Um, but um, so I, I, I think one reason why we can be as good at math as, as at least some of us are, uh, some, some humans, uh, is that we, we can uh, rely on our spatial cognition, which presumably evolved for other things uh, and can be kind of hijacked um, for, um, for math. But, um, but yes, it's, it's, it's pretty different from language. Yeah. What, uh, total aside, what are, are you Russian? What is your uh, background? My background? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I uh, originally from, yeah, the then Soviet Union, uh, from Belarus. Okay. Uh, I was tr trying to place that was, slight, slight accent. Slight that, accent. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I nine. I came when I was nine, nine, ten. Um, yeah, whether people can detect it sort of depends on where they're from. Then I lived in, the, in New York on the East Coast. So there's probably a bit of that and some. Some of the Russian, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think you say cognition like Paul Chisek, and I think he has some Slavic co cognition, oh, huh. which is, cognition. I, I would say yeah. cognition. So I don't know. Maybe I'll start saying okay. cognition. Cognition. Yeah. Funny. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. These are the important hard-hitting questions. Um, you, uh, you trained under Jay McClelland. Yes. And uh, he must be delighted about these large language models and their abilities and people's excitement about trying to look for somewhat symbolic and conceptual rep forms of representation in these models. I don't know. Are yeah. you still in touch with him? Occasionally, yeah. I mean, when I reach out, he's great at uh, at responding. And uh, if I'm in the area, uh, uh, I, 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 I try to see him. My uh, in-laws are in the Santa Cruz area, so I'm uh, over there at least. Before the pandemic was over there more yeah. more regularly, and, and so oh. we've, we've met up and... Um, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's it's it, it's fun to see uh, to see all that's that's been happening. Compare that mm. to my grad school experience. Yeah. You, oh yeah, yeah. Like it's almost like uh, well, yeah. Um, so you're you're part of a large body of people who are playing with these large language models, and uh, I don't yeah. know if you're trying to trick them or what your angle is. But what is, what is your view on? Um, on large language models in general, and then I'm curious whether it, the success of these language models have altered your thinking at all about language and cognition. Uh, yes. Uh, well, first, my my general sense is that of uh, excitement, uh, and uh, and okay. I, I, I'm I'm kind of you know giddy. <laughs> uh, Are you? And uh, well, just because it's. It's, it's yeah, it's so cool to see it. It's also tinged with some frustration, which probably other uh, folks on the podcast have also voiced. Right, that there is this you know predominantly engineering approach uh, to them, and I think yeah, right. That's uh, it's it's effective. You know, these sort of benchmarks and these it's it's a it's been very effective at um, at in, well improving performance, but uh, it's come at the cost of. Um, efforts into kind of using them to do science. And I, I think it's not because we can't, it's because, you know, so much effort has been uh, focused on, you know, 
having the bolded line and you know the tables uh you know beating the benchmark beating the previous result right uh, right that, right yeah so um but yeah i mean when i was uh in in grad school j in the uh you know we 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 used neural nets to gain insight the focus is to use them as, as scientific tools uh and you know they they were toy models they couldn't do anything and um the the uh, <laughs> symbolic models at the time uh you know we felt you know, i felt didn't give much insight but they could they could do stuff right if you want a model of poker right there was no connectionist model of poker or even you know model of of driving not not really like if you wanted you know a program to drive a car you have to uh you know do it symbolically right and so uh it's now kind of flipped right where the the models that work really really well in many contexts at least are uh not the symbolic ones so that's that's been an mm. interesting reversal so there are still people calling for neurosymbolic ai i mean do you think that that is uh, a past concern now and that we can just solve everything with scale and neural nets i think uh probably not scale um but I think it depends on what question one is trying to answer, right? So, for example, speaking a little bit uh, for for Jay, he, for a long time now, he's been very interested in math and how people do math. Uh, yeah, and yeah. so math is, at a, at, a, at a certain level, is obviously symbolic, but his question, and it resonates with the, also with the way that I approach this, although I haven't been studying math at all, is, okay, we have this neural network of a brain, and somehow we're able to do something like, you know, symbolic computation, uh, algebra, right? I would say that we're not very good at it. But of course, like compared to other <laughs> animals, like we, we are, right? And some of us yeah. are really, really good at it. And we can invent machines that are even better at it, but like we did the inventing. And so we absolutely want to understand how this emerges from a, um, from a neural network. And so understanding the emergence of symbolic or symbolic-like behavior is, is, I think, a really important goal. But if you, like what's unsatisfying is if you kind of get to start with all the symbols, if you just build it in, right? And so, yeah, right. you can add a calculator to ChatGPT and have it detect anytime you're asking a question that involves arithmetic, just plug in the calculator and it would work much better than trying to learn, uh, you know, math from language. But like, that wouldn't be that interesting scientifically. So I think if you're going to focus on things where our our cognition is most symbol-like, that's great as a research question. But I think you know you want to try to understand how that emerges from um, from neural networks, but not necessarily from just ingesting data, right? Like uh, to a large extent, I'd say that the the most symbolic parts of our thinking are those uh, that are formally taught. And this is a controversial statement. Many people don't agree with this. I, I, I would defend that statement that, you know, things like formal logic, uh, yes, we can do it. Mm. We're not that good at it. It's stuff that we are taught how to do. And part of that teaching, I think, involves kind of mapping between, you know, the things that we are good at and trying to use those for, for doing these kind of I would say less natural <laughs> operations, right? So, you know, it's striking, right? A, a, a really simple electronic circuit can do arithmetic much better than our, you know, 
huge brain. But in learning how to do arithmetic, right, we learn little algorithms and tricks. uh, And also, of course, writing things down on paper to uh, overcome the limitations of our working memory and so on and, and, and be able to do that despite that. But most of us wouldn't discover that on our own. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the most useful parts of language, I suppose. Are, are you an extended cognition advocate, a la Andy Clark? Uh, I mean, it depends. I, I find, yes. Uh, I think in, a, in <laughs> okay. for the most part, yeah. I, I mean, it depends on, well, what, what you mean by, by that. But I think uh, it's absolutely the case, yeah, that, you know, we... We, we have incorporated all kinds of tools, uh, language being, being one of them, uh, into just our, um, our kind of typical environment. Yeah. Um, you yeah, used the word, um, yeah. oh, sorry. Mm, go, go, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, um, you used the word um, emergence a few times when talking about symbols. Do you... S- what do you see as the relationship between a symbol and the sub-symbolic entities that uh, give rise to that emergent property? I mean, is a symbol an emergent property of sub-symbolic processes? In a sense, everything is, emer- is an emergent property. But is that how you think of a symbol, or do you think of it as an, an abstract, concrete entity? I, I think of it as, as an emergent sort of chunk. So uh, it's been really interesting. So you asked earlier about whether these large language models have kind of changed how I think about uh, anything in language. So one, one specific thing, and then I'll circle back to the symbol point, is um, sure. seeing just how much perceptual information seems to be embedded in language so that, of course, these language models, um, are their, their only exposure to the world is through language, uh, the, the pure language models. And yet they come to uh, have all this knowledge about what things look like, um, you know, spaces, right? Yeah. Navigating through spaces. That's and it's crazy. It's, it's not hard to find yeah. uh, gaps, but that they should know anything at all uh, is remarkable, right? And it's one yeah. thing if it's just repeating something it's heard, right? But that's not, I think, what's happening. And there is a very strong analogy here to, um, you know, for example, uh, Marina Bedney's work on how much... Uh, blind people, congenitally blind people, know about the visual world. Um, we have somewhat different takes on sort of the, the role of language uh, in this process, you know, where she kind of... So it's clear, I think, to both of us, that it's coming from language, but she puts more emphasis on the sort of inferential processes uh, than the kind of statistical learning from statistical co-occurrence. And so putting aside the question of whether humans learn all this perceptual stuff from language itself. The, what the models make clear is that the information is out there, uh, that it can be, in mm. principle, uh, learned from, from language. And so it's, uh, and I think in many cases, we do, in fact, learn a lot of it from language. For blind people, learning about the visual world through language is, is one example. But of course, so much of the visual world that we you know, we can experience, but we don't. And yet we can talk about it. We, we have, I would say, real knowledge about uh, things that we've never personally seen. And, and we, we yeah. learn um, that through language. And so it kind of, I think, uh, changed my expectation of just how much of this type of information is embedded in language. Um, 
so so the, yeah so so th that's kind of changed i i think uh it's changed my view on, uh, on embodiment a bit uh that you know okay. I, I i think prior to this i i would have thought of it as being more central than it is and there is the question of course of okay you know obviously the language that these models are trained on comes from humans uh who are embodied and yeah as a result, arguably infuse their language with all of this information about uh, appearances, about um, you know moving through the world, about space. Uh, and had they not been embodied, like, okay, of course, it, it, the information in language would be different. But that's also true of people learning language, right? So people are learning language from others. And so, uh, you know, it would be different if we found that you know models producing language and learning from language produced by other models right uh converge on the same thing but uh the 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 point that that oh it's because humans are producing language and that's why the models can succeed is to me a, a kind of a sterile point because it's humans are learning language and are learning from language that is produced by other humans as well so it's mm -hmm. I don't know if that if that uh, totally makes sense, but it, uh, so um, the idea that oh we personally right must be embodied for this and that bit of language to make sense, I think is uh, in some ways challenged by by the success of large language models. Um, well, okay, so you just used the, the term "make sense," which you know relates to the idea of meaning. And yeah, I mean, is is one way to think of language like is <laughs> so it's its own level of abstraction and connection, and you can learn all the structure and in the world. But are these language models missing meaning? And is embodiment and grounding important for meaning? Uh, of course, well, you know, because the the language model, it, perhaps it's only great at. Um, the statistical regularities, right, of language, and that that that's, yeah. that's its own structure. But then the connection to meaning is is through embodiment or, or grounding. Yeah, yeah. So so this is you know obviously a contentious issue, and it depends on what one yeah. means by meaning. Um, so yeah, it it, yeah. it always struck me as strange uh, to think that okay, if you have no grounding uh, to the external world. You know, you can't have any meaning at all. But then, okay, uh, how much grounding do you need? Like if you put in a little bit yeah. now, suddenly everything <laughs> is grounded out and then meaning just magically appears. That doesn't yeah. seem right. Um, and, uh, you know, then I also find myself reflecting on how people actually use language and how much of language is pretty abstract and not about concrete things yeah. in the world. And so many of the words we use, right? The the way that we tend to use them, they might have certain more literal meanings, but the way that we tend to use them really are about the more abstract uh, aspects that are about the word's relationship to other words. Uh, in fact, so Mark Brisbert and his colleagues who collected the large-scale data on concreteness judgments that many people uh, use, so Thousands, tens of thousands of words, you know, rate this word on a concrete to abstract scale. Uh, here's a, a, a little, I think, a 
insufficiently widely known fact about those ratings, uh, which is that the way that they defined whether a word is concrete or abstract is that concrete words are things that um, words denoting things that you could point to or enact, right? So jump is fairly concrete in that, you know, you could, if you, if you couldn't use the word jump, you could just like jump around and uh, to convey mm. the idea of jumping. Um, so that's the one end of the scale. And then abstract, they defined as words, meanings of which you would uh, need to describe with other words, right? Uh, and so the reason this is important is that when you actually look at the distribution of words that people use, it, it skews pretty heavily on the abstract end. So these are words oh, that, right? that, yeah, that, um, you know, and obviously if, in child-directed speech, it's, it's a bit different, it's more concrete. Um, but uh, yeah, if you, we, we did these few of these little exercises where you, you, know, you take a passage of text and you remove the most concrete words from it. And compare that to removing the most uh, abstract words from it. And removing the most concrete words removes some details. Removing the most abstract words, even just focusing on content words, not like the and uh, right? You just have no idea what this is about anymore. Um, hmm. So really, so much of meaning is this in these abstract words, which, you know, the, those meanings are the relations between words. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I have no personally no trouble in saying that there is a huge amount of real meaning just in those connections. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, once yeah. you, yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends on what you mean by meaning, I suppose. It, <laughs> it all com comes back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the way that, um, for example, language is often studied, let's say word learning in kids, I think reference is overemphasized in part because like it just makes it easier to run the experiments, right? So you study how kids learn, you know, in a lab, uh, a word for some novel object, right? So you have some concrete object. And it's it's not because most researchers, I think uh, language development researchers think that that's all there is. It's just that it's more tractable, um, you know, than to study the more abstract uh, parts mm. of, of, of word meaning uh, and how, you know, w words become associated with one another. Um, but I think that that, among you know, other things, led to an overemphasis on kind of concrete reference, right, as a key part of, of meaning. Do, do you think that language models have anything to say about the way that language develops in children? Uh, because they, they learn so differently. And then, so I was talking, you know, I, I had Ellie Pavlik on recently, and some of her work um, is a, her conclusion from some of her work is that it's it's possible that these large language models could kind of learn backwards from humans, right? Where they get the grounding later. I don't know how much grounding yeah. they they would need, like you were alluding to, but basically, like yeah. learn perfect language, whatever that is, and then get the grounding later. But but do you see any way to tie language model quote unquote learning to the way that humans learn? Yeah, so that actually makes a lot of sense to me that. There is a lot of work uh, showing that kids learn, yeah, that there is a big concreteness advantage, right? that uh, children's early words are more, they tend to be nouns, they tend to be concrete nouns. When they start learning and verbs, they tend to be the more concrete verbs. So, so there is lots of evidence pointing to the importance of grounding. 
I don't know if it's really about grounding or about uh, kind of what kids use language for, right? Which is for, for getting kind of what meeting, they want, <laughs> getting what they want exactly. And so you know they don't need to talk about this sort of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. uh, th that we're talking about now, right? There, it's it's for um, getting what they want, getting attention, right? Getting you know, and uh, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, yeah, and and so in a sense, I agree on this with Ellie that it's a kind of a backwards process. Um, yeah, it would be interesting to know whether um, in these language models, I feel like there's probably work on this. Um, there is also a concreteness advantage. So even though there's no like, even if there's no reference to the real world, right? More concrete words tend to be used in uh, more predictable contexts. Right, they they have narrower meanings, and so they're easier to predict. And so, if you're oh. just learning through prediction, there's there's reason to think that that would be easier um, to learn. Um, but uh, uh, as far as parallels, so yeah, I, I mean, there's a it's it's kind of become a trope that like, oh, kids don't learn language in anything like the way that the models learn. I mean, um, I think when it comes to language use, that's that's true, but um, I think kids are predictive learners. They also, um, oh. you know, are learning from examples and generalizing from examples. And a lot of kids' early language is uh, very stereotyped, and it's not as creative and productive as is often made out. Uh, and when you know the child's environment, like, you know, and they say something new, I mean, when they start going to school and they're learning from other kids and stuff, it... it it's all <laughs> you. You lose track of it. But like, how old are, early how old are on, your you kids? Kind of, I know you have my. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have two boys. One is uh, turning three uh, in a couple of months, oh. and one is uh, five and a half. So in kindergarten. Uh, yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's 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 been fun to watch, and uh, the. But I was going to say that earlier on, when they're saying fewer different things, right? You you can often kind of track where they got something from, right? It's like, oh yeah, that phrase, you know, that's clearly from this TV show, right? And they're only using this word within this phrase. And then, you know, a month later, right, it branches out and now, you know, it's being used in the more expanded context. But it's not like they learned this word and from the beginning they have some, you know, full knowledge of how the word is used. And it's really brittle and narrow. And then often, you know, if you ask them, uh, right, like often they use words without full understanding of w what they're saying. <laughs> like, so do I. That's a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So do we. Uh, but we, we probably have a higher threshold for it. Like we have some mm. social monitoring, right? Like we don't want to be called out or anything. Kids don't Shame. have that as much. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but, but um, I wanted to just briefly return. So the emerging symbols, so I think what's been so interesting for me um, in watching these language models is just the effectiveness of prediction, right? And uh, I wouldn't want to say that like that's all there is to human learning, but I think that that's a lot of what human learning is about. And uh, I think it means something to find that, hey, these, th this, this process of predicting works really, really well, right? Does that mean, same thing mm -hmm. with reinforcement learning, right? Does that mean that there is something 
you know, that nature is trying to tell us something, right? If it works really well across a bunch of contexts, right? Uh, could it be that it works really well because it's a really good way of solving a bunch of problems and biological evolution is likely to have uh, found a similar solution. And so when it comes to language learning, of course, predicting the next word or the surrounding words is generally not the point, but it turns out that it's a really good way of learning structure. And so uh, if you start being able to predict things really well, it probably means you've learned some useful internal model, not just of language, but to some extent of the world. And uh, if it turns out that uh, symbols are a useful part of that model, well, you're learning mm -hmm. symbols. Um, and so I, I yeah, that, that's kind of how, so yeah, the, this, this idea that like, oh, it's just autocomplete, therefore it can't have meaning. I feel like it, it sort of misses the point because the, the, the goal is not predicting. That's just the loss function. Um, but in trying to predict, that's just a really good way of learning underlying structure. And if you can predict really, really well in lots of other contexts, we call that some degree of understanding, right? So, you know, uh, even if it's hard to talk about. Yeah. So, so you don't think that, <laughs> sorry, this is a, could be a, uh, off the wall question, but you don't think life is necessary for um, understanding, meaning, et cetera? I don't know. It's it. Yeah, it's it's kind of <laughs> above my pay grade. I don't know. Overly philosophical. Come down uh, on one so, one side or the other, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so far these models are not actual uh, actors, agents, right? Uh, they they respond to our prompts, right? They're not actually creating anything on their own. Uh, and people are, mm. and so, uh, right? So, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I find myself all, often in, uh, landing on the side of like, I, I think humans understand far less than we give ourselves credit for, right? And there's Definitely. way less understanding yeah. in us. <laughs> and so we're probably overestimating our own understanding and underestimating like understanding in in these sorts of models. Um, and so, you, you know, it, so I, I think the models are learning certain um, world, sort of world models, right? In the same, some of the same ways that we are learning world models. But we have lots of goals and we are kind of agents in the world and we effect change, right? In, in a way that these models don't. And so, um, like, they don't, we, cre we sort of make stuff, we make meaning, right, in a way that these models don't, right? They're just responding to our own prompts. Um, and if you get, you know, two models talking to one another, right, it's, it's not very deep, uh, right? Like, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it becomes kind of circular. Um, of course, lots of our conversations, human to human conversations, sure. aren't very deep either. So, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of circular, um, so I, this is something that I also asked Ellie uh, the other day. 
So you have these language models, they're generating a bunch of text. They're trained on the corpora of web text, uh, text from the World Wide Web. But then, so they're generating this text. That text is going to yeah. go onto the web, and future models are going to be trained by the text that they generate. What effect does that have on um, us as a society, but also on the nature of the way that language changes and evolves throughout time? Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've thought about it. Uh, I don't have an answer, right? It seems like it would just kind of create the circularity and probably amplify existing biases. Um, I think there's a fun, right? It's fundamentally different from, you know, uh, a chess or Go model playing itself, right? Because that's a closed world with a definite kind of reward function. And so you can learn from exploring this world um, and, and, and reach new insights. If you're just right. using language without any connection to anything, I, I don't see how you can uh, go beyond just kind of reinforcing uh, kind of existing biases. Um, but if you now combine these models with uh, other sources of data, right, um, mm. you know, now maybe you can kind of break out of that circularity, right? And so, um, right, I mean, one can flip that question around and ask, okay, well, how is it that humans are not um, running into that same problem? Because we are learning language from other people, and then we are producing uh, the, the training set. Uh, and presumably, it's because we're also interacting with the larger world, having different experiences, and sharing those experiences with one another, right? Inventing new technologies, uh, interacting with those technologies, and, uh, you know, uh, disseminating that new stuff to other people. And so we're not just kind of rehashing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, like if I, if I go, I don't know, take up surfing or something, I'm going to learn new vocabulary, but I also might create a new word for uh, when the water is choppy and it's cold and I had a m bad run or something, you know, I might call that a blunk or something. Yeah, and yeah. So a, a language model, I, I suppose you could you could build in that generative neologism um, objective into the language model. But then, man, that'd be scary if if you, they would. It seems like they would run wild, and and our language would change really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a really interesting idea. Uh, so I've been very um, intrigued by you know, lexical innovation, language change. So. Um, one way to think about, right, so, oh, you know, we invent words for kind of things that we already know, uh, uh, and uh, I, I, I don't think that's right. So that could be true for the, you know, if someone invents a word, it presumably reflects some idea that they've already had and, and you know, that they find useful uh, to have a word for. But in general, the words that we encounter are not things that we necessarily already had uh, a concept for. Uh, we learn the concept, mm -hmm. many concepts, I think, in the course of learning those words, right? And so if that word happens to become a kind of part of our core vocabulary that every speaker has to know, then you have to learn those words just in the process of learning the language. And so you, as a speech community, end up aligning on those concepts. Um, and so, yeah, so I could imagine, you know, the, these models through kind of being exposed to way more text than any individual human, right, 
can kind of build a new chunk and say, okay, well, here's some useful regu some regularity that is frequent, but doesn't have a word for, is not lexicalized. And you know, here I'm going to invent this word and then use it in context. And people, uh, many words we learn just passively by kind of reading and, and encountering them in context, right? And so now, you know, people are exposed to this thing. So that could be kind of cool. Um, I, I hadn't thought of that before. That's hmm. that's an interesting uh, kind of influence on, yeah, on lexicalization, language change. What is a concept? And how do you think about it relative to a symbol? Um, so I, I know a lot of your work is, you know, focuses on whether what you're like what you were just alluding to i mean you've done research on this you know the the back and forth between concepts and language and the idea that you espouse is that um we don't have these inherent innate concepts and then just map our words onto them that there's it's more of an um interaction yeah yeah um so i i i think of concepts and i should caveated by recognizing that there are different um, different meanings of concept as used by psychology and, and philosophy. And, and so I'm talking about concepts as sort of internal mental entities. Um, so I think of them as just mental representations of categories, uh, right? And so they're not, and again, with symbol, different people use symbol differently, right? One distinction between how at least some people use symbol and how I use concept is um, a concept isn't a you know, a, 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 a singular kind of undifferentiated node, right? So it's perfectly sensible for me to say, okay, you know, you have a concept of a dog, but then some dogs are, you know, typical dogs and other dogs are kind of atypical dogs. And, you know, some dogs look more similar to cats and other dogs, you know, look very different from cats, right? So it's not uh, like, it, it doesn't require some single node that is, the dog, right? Mm -hmm. Dog, you know, in, in all caps. Um, but there is a sense in which we can have a thought about dogs that is somewhat distinct from thoughts about a specific dog, right? And so, and that that's something that language is really good at instantiating. So even if a speaker has a specific dog and, you know, they're thinking of a specific dog, they use the word dog, right? And it activates a representation in, in the hearer of a dog that is more abstracted and more categorical uh, than what would be activated by, for example, seeing a specific dog. And so that's kind of, so I, I think of language as, ha as being sort of like a, a cue or an operator, right, for instantiating a mental state uh, that in some cases, maybe we'd be able to instantiate that mental state even without language. But I think often uh, we we wouldn't, even if we could. In practice, we would not, um, mm. right? And um, and in the course of learning a word for something, we are learning, and then also in using the word regularly, we're learning to instantiate that more categorical mental state. That is one not kind of as focused on a specific experience, a specific exemplar, a specific yeah situation. Have um, sorry, I'm kind of jumping around here, but I have a, a couple more kind of open-ended, broad questions, and then in the last few minutes, I have some uh, questions from Patreon listeners that I'll ask you. Um, has how was I how was I going to phrase this? Has the advent of like these large language models changed the way you view 
language in terms of how special it is. The you know within the hierarchy of awesome human cognitive abilities, is language still up there? Or you know, for me, like seeing these language oh. models, it's like, oh, okay, it justifies that language is not that great. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, I so. I have the opposite, actually, uh, kind of takeaway, which is okay. it um, kind of vindicates the idea that there is something really, uh, Im- well, central, <laughs> I think, to language. So, for example, you know, it's it's been really cool to see the the generative art models, right? And uh, mm-hmm. that that's awesome. Like, uh, I think they probably have a whole lot to teach us about actually the the nature of you know visual information. Uh, but uh, it's not a coincidence, I think, that it, that they're using language as an interface, right? So, you know, you're training them on, on these uh, captions and, and images, and one could say, okay, well, of course, you know, we want them to use language because if we want people to use them, right, kind of for them to be useful, like it's helpful to be able to use language to prompt them to produce certain kinds of visual uh visual outputs, right? But but language is, I think, actually a much more central part of these models, right? Because, you know, if I want to generate, um, you know, a, a, uh, I don't know a, a piranha riding on a unicycle, okay? And uh, this is something that <laughs> Good we one. can do. Uh, and, uh, well, where did they get that concept of, you know, piranha riding, unicycle, right? That doesn't come purely from the visual information. I'd argue that you can't get it from the visual information alone. Um, it comes from training on vision and language. And so language is not just being used as an interface. Language is actually what is, in these models, creating a lot of these categories that we can then deploy right, and, and use. Hmm. Um, hmm. It's, it's incredible, actually, to, that you know, the sense of like a fish riding a unicycle and a horse riding a unicycle. It's, it's a different type of riding, right? visually and it's really cool that it often gets that right uh and that's i think kind of unexpected but uh but that sort of verb ride right like that's not in the visual world right that's a a a word meaning and um the models learned it to some extent because it's there right and were it not for language like how do you get riding out of the visual data like i don't know i don't think there is a way um so yeah so it's it's kind of showing that language is uh this actually much more central way of organizing information than um you know than one might think um and i i don't know i I don't think the engine so for example with the older kind of just the the regular supervised vision classification models, right, trained on ImageNet or whatever, and, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you show an image and it tells you that it's a dog or whatever. Uh, In my discussions with with folks um, working with these models, I got the sense that they weren't thinking of the language as playing any role, that these are not, in any sense, language models, right? They're just vision models. And of course, to be useful, you wanted to output a verbal label, but that label had nothing to do with language. And... I mean, I, I think that's, that's not really right because uh, in that supervised learning process, right, you're telling the model that uh, whatever, you know, horses or dogs or whatever, like, are a thing. And that's a lot of what language is telling us also, right? That 
you know, were it not for the encounter with these words, it might not occur to you to treat all examples of this thing as having anything in common. Um, and so this guides your learning, and that supervision signal is telling you, you still have to figure out what they all have in common. You still have to do the learning. The model still has to do that learning. But it's at least telling you that, okay, treat all of these as being the same sort of thing. Uh, you know, and here's the signal telling you that, like, which things should be treated as the same. And I think that's a lot of the role that language is playing, uh, natural language in human is there, learning. But is there any detriment to that? Is there anybody, any, I'm sorry, I'm pushing you on this. Like, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate, but, you know, by throwing out, by, by only looking at the commonalities and calling everything, you know, all dogs, dogs, you know, or whatever, is there any detriment yeah, yeah. in terms of cognition? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, um, I mean, I think you see that in um, sort of the domain of social categories, right? So we learn um, gender also, right? So we learn these labels and um, we sort of tend to then automatically classify people, right? As members of that category, yeah. uh, right? And, you know, that has consequences for, for tre <laughs> treating people, right? It doesn't mean you can't then treat them as, you know, uh, or, or also represent them as an individual, but there's a consequence to initially classifying them. Uh, so you see that in um, what's been called the other race effect, right? That it's harder for people to recognize uh, individuals of the other race. Yeah. It's actually, yeah. it's not, it's more accurately called a minority race effect because um, oh. it's, so, so the idea is that, you know, oh, in, in the U.S., let's say, you know, white faces are a majority group. And so whether you yourself are white or black, you know that the white faces are the majority group. So if you see a white person, you're less likely to classify them as a, as a white person because that's just the kind of the default category. And so what's the alternative is to kind of represent them in a, as, as an individual. You see a member of minority group, right, if the first kind of classification is that they are a member of this group, it becomes harder to represent the, the individual details. Um, and when the category, you know, gender category also becomes salient, uh, it doesn't mean that you're only representing that person as a male or female, but it means that you, you're representing them as, as a male who is, you know, and connecting it to other details. And so there are consequences, absolutely, uh, of, yeah, and often negative consequences of, of this sort of categorization. Okay. So you're giddy about the large language models. You're <laughs> impressed, and um, but I, but I think I've heard you say that you're not giddy about the idea of artificial general intelligence. So um, if if I have that right, maybe um, yeah. well, do I have that right? And if so, um, why not? If you're so giddy about these large language models, aren't we aren't we just one step away now from AGI? Well, so uh, I I find the talk of AGI to be kind of uninformed because it assumes a certain, I think, shallow view of what intelligence is, right? That, okay. uh, first of all, they're sort of like, okay, you know, humans are generally intelligent. And so, you know, you know, when will these AI models be generally intelligent? And then this idea that like, well, there's nothing special about the level of human intelligence. And so once they're on that track, right, uh, you know, one step below human intelligence, uh, then it's just a matter of days before they're at human intelligence and exceeding human intelligence. And I think it, that reasoning makes sense when applied to some uh, close class domain like playing a particular game, right? It's true that there's nothing presumably special about the human level of Go or chess playing. And once you're good enough, you can quickly exceed it. 
But I think that logic doesn't apply to actual natural intelligence, right? Because, like, you know, we, we don't have a good way of, um, well, we, some people think they understand human intelligence. I, I, I think they're wrong and have been misled by a kind of reliance on uh, intelligence testing and IQ tests, mm. right? Which, mm. you know, at their best, right, maybe can be good at measuring, right, certainly culturally valued uh, skills um, and ways of thinking, but there's nothing general about it, um, right? It's, it's just about, like, sure, IQ tests in many contexts are predictive of, um, you know, success in certain types of jobs and so on because, like, we value certain skills and so we design tests to test those skills. But what is general? I, I, I don't think there's anything general about it. Um, and so... I, I feel like the discussions of AGI are often predicated on the kind of shallow view of human intelligence. Um, mm. And so, you know, I, I also, I, I like to kind of give, you know, think in terms of a thought experiment, right? Where, like, okay, you know, if you think that there's certain, something about the human brain that allow, gives us general intelligence or, uh, well, you know, go back 50,000 years, right? You know, if you observe people you know, they would not do well on an IQ test, uh, right? And so they have the same brains. Obviously, the cultural technologies are different. You know, they are way better at certain things that now we don't care about, uh, way worse at other things. You know, they're, they're not doing math. They're not doing science, right? Um, the hardware is the same, right? And so would you then, come, would you then conclude that they are not generally intelligent? Right, and and it just the the, the whole kind of thing d doesn't doesn't really uh, make much sense <laughs> make much sense to me, uh, and uh, and and then the thing about like so I think these large language models, right, are showing that yeah you can learn for example to produce all these grammatical sentences from from just input and from, so they have a lot to teach us about like what is needed and perhaps not needed uh, to say learn language but so far right they're not doing things in the world uh the way that animals and uh you know human and non-human animals are and it's not clear how good they are at doing things in the world so i think we're not even at the not only are we not kind of at the top of that that curve uh we're not even like really on it yet uh yeah but i, I like that you um highlighted the distinction between humans 50,000 years ago, let's say, and today, um, because it, so I, I, I agree with you, I, I don't bind to AGI or, or generality in general. But what it does highlight for me, and what I've been enjoying thinking about recently is the vast capacity for that range of cognition that our brains endow us with. I'll say our brains, yeah. you know, so I guess that could be controversial for some people. But it's, it's the capacity that is... Um, more impressive to me than the actual doing of any one given kind of task or range of tasks. Um, it, but but I don't know if that makes sense to you or if you agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it, 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 it is amazing. Um, I wonder, right, um, kind of continuing that thought experiment, uh, if you had to make a prediction based on the behaviors of people 50,000 years ago, right, would these animals... <laughs> which are anatomically modern humans, right? 
would they, you know, go to the moon and, you know, be doing modern <laughs> physics and all this stuff, right? Like, what reason would someone have to to make that prediction, you know, confidently? Right. Um, right. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think 50,000 years ago, like, humans are on a very different trajectory from <clears throat> other animals, right? Um, but but based on the level of technology and kind of actual, uh, you know, uh, uh, scientific achievements, right? Not, you know, totally different from now. So I, I don't know. I think uh, I find kind of, yeah, the discussions of the intelligence within the context of artificial general intelligence to be kind of very narrow and focused on not just the humans of the present, but particular kinds of humans of the present, Right, and so valuing very <laughs> yeah. specific types yeah. of intelligence and not others, and yeah, this guy, this guy, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, uh, so I'll end um, before I ask you a few like specific Patreon questions. I, I uh, began with Ellie Pavlik asking her if I had to freeze her for how long she would like me to freeze yeah. her and then thaw her out to continue to, to then like wake up and continue her research career, and that kind of morphed into um, her. So seven and a half years, because she said in five to 10 years, she feels like we'll have a good understanding of how language models work. Um, where do you, do you think it's, is that, is that um, too long of an estimate? Or, you know, do you think that we'll understand how language models work in the near future, far future? How long would you like to be frozen? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's, Actually, uh, that's not my primary goal to understand lang how language models work. I, I think that time estimate seems plausible to me, um, but I'm not sure that understanding how they work, I think it'll be very satisfying. I don't know that it would it, it would change much. Um, so well, let, let's, like, focus let's say on, we have um, a for your own for your own career and goals. How long would yeah. you like if if you had to be frozen and then wake up and continue asking the questions yeah. that you're asking and, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious. Okay. I'll, I'll say a hundred years, hundred years. Oh, I uh, like that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that'll give opportunity to see how language has changed in response to all of this technology. Oh. Um, I'm really curious actually about, um, the use of these language models, like some uses are strike me as kind of like time saving, time saving, but uninteresting. Like, okay, you can write emails faster. Like, okay, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, other uses are, are sort of much more interesting. So for example, uh, one of the remarkable aspects of these models uh, that I, I didn't see coming is that just, okay, so you've been trained on this enormous enormous corpus of data, but you can access very specific things in this precise and kind of, I don't know, uncanny way, right? So uh, use of these models for indexing information. And so I could imagine people using them more for uh, basically feeding in their individual information. So people have been playing around with this, feeding in their you know journal entries to these language models, their notes, right? And then having the model use that information um, right, when person indexes it, right? So it's not just indexing kind of knowledge at large, it's indexing your own personal knowledge. And so you can imagine interfacing 
um, this with you know people's um, right so external memories so photos recordings um, mm. and and having that be a much more integral part of our workflow um, uh, and and that could really transform right like I'm thinking of education you know what it means now like even now right with all the technology and you know, the students college students you know they're taking notes right if they're typing notes okay it's easier to search through those notes but you have to come up with your own like ways of organizing so but that could all be presumably even with current current technology automated right and indexed probably in a more effective way than what we do as individuals um and so having yeah. all of this available to us and kind of integrated um you know I, I could see that feeding back in and kind of making us i don't know smarter you know in certain ways um so that could be cool to see how that develops uh, over the next century so 100 years I, I would kind of i would kind of be uh hesitant or scared 100 years is things could be so dramatically different that i would worry that i wouldn't be able to function in society <laughs> but i like it yeah yeah i think honestly i mean if if uh if <laughs> if the past uh uh if you look at how people get the future wrong right uh yeah, like yeah. when predicting the future it i i think there is a systematic bias right like people actually <laughs> people's predictions of technology some of them are pretty good but people tend to really underestimate social change right so you have like you know victorian era predictions of like okay flying things we have flying things okay but then it's like everyone is still dressed the same way and there are like <laughs> traditional gender roles you know that that has not changed but now like the mailman flies around right <laughs> like <laughs> so uh, uh so i think the, the 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 hardest things to adjust to will probably be the social thing gary thank you so much for dancing around so many of these topics with me before i let you go um you you have a kind of a psychedelic i can tell it's a brain on your shirt uh, it looks like a cool yeah. shirt. Can I see the what? What, what is the shirt? Yeah, yeah, what is yeah. that? What is uh, the it's shirt? Just brain. Um, uh, it's a it's a <laughs> it's a figure one brain map. So there used to be this uh, site called Woot. Uh, it was bought up by Amazon at some point, and uh, they kind of disassembled it. But uh, they had um, so I have a whole lot of T-shirts from it. They sold T-shirts. Uh, it was like people submitted designs. And then everyone voted, uh, and the top three designs got printed, and then they sold the T-shirts. So this was someone's oh. someone's design. Um, so, yeah. But uh, they've they haven't been around for a long time, and uh, all of these shirts uh, I think will soon have to be retired because, yeah, they're not being replaced. Oh, it's <laughs> I have, oh, I have a well, lot. It's a it's a, a cool of, shirt. Yeah, different ones. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank, thanks for, uh, again for your time. I uh, appreciate it, and good luck uh, moving forward. Yeah, yeah, this was fun. Thanks. I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. 
You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you, thank you for your support. See you next time.